Welcome to Let's Talk Memoir, a podcast for memoir lovers, readers, and writers. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Brooke Warner. She is publisher of She Writes Press and Spark Press, president of Warner Coaching Inc., and author of Write On Sisters, Greenlight Your Book, What's Your Book, and Three Books on Memoir. Brooke is a TEDx speaker and the former executive editor of Seal Press. She's the current board chair of the Bay Area Book Festival and sits on the board of the National Association of Memoir Writers. She writes a weekly Substack newsletter at Brooke Warner and is a regular columnist for Publishers Weekly. Welcome, Brooke. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for being here. Uh, I really don't know how you boil down everything you do into that very brief and beautiful bio. <laughs> I, I was snooping around and I thought I knew a little bit about what you did and what you've accomplished, but I couldn't believe how much you offer and all the different, is it plates you have uh, spinning in the air? There's so much going on. So yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just amazing. And so, okay, so just to boil it down, you're a writer, a coach, an editor, a publisher, a podcaster, and I wonder how you find time to do all of this. How do you balance all these roles? You know, I don't think I have great balance. I, I know I work a lot. I, I'm lucky, I guess, because I, I do find time to play. I mean, I have a young son. He forces balance, I like to say, because <laughs> I... I get away from work. I do work a lot though, you know, and I think it's a thing where when your creativity sort of merges into your work life or vice versa, the good news is that I'm, I'm so engaged in what I do and I really enjoy it, but there's no question. There's a lot of, a lot of work hours in my day. Mm -hmm. And something that's been on my mind a lot, because I feel like I've been adding plates to my spinning, mm -hmm. is that the writing part, you know, the writing time, which for me, I feel like I can multitask a lot of different things and I can sort of split my energy when I'm getting a lot of, of the tasks I need to do for all the other areas of my creative life. But the writing part seems to confound me a little bit more, like the <laughs> isolated, cherished time for writing. And I hear you laughing. So how do you manage that? You know, I started an accountability group that was a game changer because I wasn't managing that part very well. And I am trying to write a book right now. I am writing a book right now, not just trying. Uh, and I, <laughs> I had to really say to myself, like, I'm going to carve out some space for this that is real and meaningful and that is not going to take the back seat because I think, unfortunately, that's what happens, especially yeah. for those of us who are busy and when you have to make money and the writing part is maybe not a money maker or the ROI is way, way out in the future. Mm -hmm. So the accountability group is very helpful because it, it forces me to write at least four hours a week. And that's that's made a huge difference. Yeah. Uh, prior to this level of busyness, although maybe there was no prior, I'm not sure. Uh, did you have were you a feast or famine type of a writer or were you, <laughs> I'm getting you to laugh a lot. So I'm so curious. Yeah. I, I just like the way that you put that. Yeah. I guess you know, so. Actually because... I stole that from Alison K. Williams. <laughs> oh, okay. That's great. Yes. And, and she's right. I think a lot of us are that way, especially if we have jobs, you know, and, and kids or whatever the things that we're trying to balance, as you mentioned, balance. So previously, 
when I've written my books, yeah, it's been feast or famine. I mean, I write a lot. I write for Substack. I write for Publishers Weekly. I write other columns. But when I write a book, I I tend to be feast or famine. And I have done a lot of what, you know, what we know as binge writing. Mm -hmm. uh, and But with the this book, which is a memoir, it's a little harder to do that because of the emotional part. You know, it, it's a little mm -hmm. easier when you're writing a self-help book or something like that to cram it in. Uh, mm -hmm. But with memoir, I think you have, and maybe this is true of fiction too, the, what it asks of you is so much more emotional depth. And, and I don't find that I can just sit down and hammer out a chapter and be like, oh, that's pretty good. Now I'm going to send it to my editor. There's, there's a lot more finessing going on. I absolutely agree with you. And I, I, as people who've been listening to this podcast for a while know, I've been trying my hand at poetry, taking more poetry classes and working on some of it. And I find for that, even though it's a shorter form, I also kind of need to go into the poetry tunnel. Like I feel like once I'm in there, once I'm in that mode, I cannot be disturbed. I just don't even want to mm. go in there unless I know I have time that will be unbroken. And I totally understand what you're saying because when I'm writing something like an article or something that's helpful or has actionable steps in it, that is very easy for me to switch gears back and forth. But this space that you create with a memoir world and the places that you have to go emotionally seem to be something you have to protect more. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm finding that to be true. And I, I guess I did know that from my clients and it's intuitive, but there's a big difference, you know, feeling it for yourself and, and the, and the really the time that it necessitates and the energy and the emotional response that it necessitates. It's, it's not something that you can just dabble in, you know, and I think that's mm -hmm. where I was thinking I have to do something different. I, I can't just dabble and think that it's going to be okay. I, I need to have some consistent and dedicated space for it. Yeah. And I wonder if it has to do with the vulnerability it asks of us. I think mm -hmm. you just have to kind of reach, I feel, I'm speaking for myself, but I feel like you have to reach even further and deeper in to pull out what your memoir needs. And I wonder, is this your very first, I know you've written a lot of books mm -hmm. on memoir, but am I right? Is this your first memoir memoir? It is. Yes, you are correct. Yeah. And can you talk, but without, without diluting the project that you're working on and the space you're creating for it, can you talk at all about the period of time in which you're, you know, what you're covering? Yeah, I'm writing about roughly 2004 to 2016, which is a very long period of time. You know, I mean, 12 years is, is longer than I would have imagined for myself, but I'm, I'm writing it in a fragmented style. And so I'm not trying to cover every single thing that happened over those years. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a lot about my relationship at that time, my ex, but it's also very intertwined with my years at Seal Press and starting She Writes. And that's an important mm -hmm. part of the story for me that it's, it's absolutely the story of a relationship and sort of what happened, but it's intermingled with that journey because my ex and I were at Seal Press together. And, and mm -hmm. it's just an interesting story of, um, yeah, within a relationship and sort of within the publishing world is, is what mm -hmm. I'm trying to balance and, and see if I can pull that off. Did you know that you had this memoir in you? That's a good question. I mean, I knew I had a memoir in me, I guess, if I were to be honest, 
this is probably the only story I could write at the moment. Um, and, and perhaps I knew that if I was going to write a memoir, it was going to be this story and I needed to have some distance from it, which is why now is finally the time. Uh, cause I've been at this memoir teaching stuff for quite a long time and publishing memoirs and teaching memoirs. Uh, and I, people would ask me all the time, you know, have you written a memoir? Are you going to write a memoir? <laughs> and I would just sort of say someday. It, it felt like I knew I would get there. I just didn't know when. Mm-hmm. And it is really interesting because I noticed in all the work that you do, you offer a real concentrated amount of classes, courses, writing on memoir in particular. Do you know when you became really interested in memoir or when you decided to focus on it or did it happen? How did that come about? It happened because of SEAL. You know, mm-hmm. I, uh, Seal Press was very much a memoir-driven list, and I was acquiring memoirs. I mean, I'm trying to think how many books on a given list would not be memoir, but I was probably acquiring 20 books a season, so somewhere around 40 to 45 books a year, the majority of which were memoir, and I was immersed in that world for almost nine years as a memoir editor, a memoir acquisitions editor, in addition to the books that I was editing and acquiring, I was reading tons and tons of memoir because really to be immersed in that world, you need to know what your competition is. I would lose books to other publishers and then I would want to read those books. You know, that stuff mm. happened. So it, it did come to me, but it was so natural. I mean, once I started working on memoir, I realized that it was the genre that I loved, that it became the genre of my heart. Uh, And, you know, those nine long years at SEAL informed everything I know about memoir. Mm -hmm. So when you decided to leave SEAL Press and begin She Writes Press, and I'm sure you've talked a lot about this in your life. I'm sure people always want to know. But for, for those listeners who aren't as familiar with the genesis of She Writes Press, can you spend just a little bit of time explaining what made you decide to create She Writes Press and what the model is? Yeah, um, you know, the it, it was hard to leave SEAL, actually. I, I was quite in love with the press, and that sort of a little bit touches upon what I want to share in my memoir, too, is a, the love story with my ex-wife, but also with SEAL Press, and SEAL Press kind of being our first baby in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was, it was such a powerful experience to work at SEAL and to come of age in publishing, you know, there at a feminist press, but also during those years. And leaving was very difficult, but it also was very important because I was starting to experience things there that felt I can only describe as soul crushing. (laughs) It it was very, very challenging consolidation. We got acquired by a corporate publishing house. Uh, Since I've left, Seal is now with Hachette, you know, so Mm. at the time it, it just kept getting eaten up by bigger and bigger entities and it had the effect of diluting what Seal Press was to me. I I still Mm -hmm. think Seal Press is doing amazing books, so it's not to disparage the press, but what it was to me was changing. And, you know, meanwhile, I was, I had my eyes open and I was coaching a little bit here and there. And I just started working with a lot of independent authors and a lot of self-published authors. And this idea of having a hybrid model I don't think I was the first, but there was, it wasn't like there was any template or blueprint for it. I just didn't have deep pockets. I didn't have the capacity to start a, a traditional publishing house. And so I had worked 
at a press called North Atlantic Books prior to working at Seal. And North Atlantic had hybrid publishing models, you know, where they would kind of split mm -hmm. contracts and do all this stuff. And so I, I sort of built the model based on what I knew of North Atlantic and, and based on Seal. It was a little bit of an amalgamation of everything. And I started it really just as a way I thought that I would get more coaching clients because I was ready hmm. to be out on my own. But it turned out to be quite the opposite of that. You know, it turned out that she writes became the thing and, and coaching was always the supplemental <laughs> secondary thing. But the, the business model is non-traditional. It's um it is author subsidized. But what is different about it is that the authors get a high percentage of the royalties. We like to think of it as like commiserate, right? Because mm -hmm. we give them as much as we can because we have traditional distribution. And so the books get out into the trade in a very robust and meaningful way. And then what that means is, from my perspective, is that our authors really do have a level playing field. They have an opportunity to get their work out there in a way that is just not possible not only with self-publishing, but I would argue with some small presses who don't have meaningful distribution. Mm -hmm. What in your experience has been something that new authors are most surprised about when it comes to getting their books into the world? Everything. I mean, I <laughs> new authors are oftentimes very naive and I, I mean that kindly but what they think they can do and what's actually possible is there's often a wide gap there you know being a debut author is a very humbling experience if you're not known and you put out a book no matter how wonderful it is it takes time to build that momentum and and you also have to start your publicity early mm -hmm. uh, you have to again have that meaningful distribution into the marketplace and i think that's a huge one what we're trying to do is always open doors because reviews mean something to be reviewed and in trade reviews gives you an opportunity to get into libraries and to be more visible and and authors don't understand that it like the way that visibility works is kind of like a ripple right i mean you throw that stone into the pond and then that ripple effect goes you know cascades out and out and out and out but you have to keep working at that and working all the angles and to you know you don't just become like a national success mm -hmm. story overnight it takes so much effort and i think a lot of times authors mistakenly believe that they don't have to be part of that effort Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that if they have a publishing house or if they have distribution or they have whatever it is, then everything is just going to happen. Uh, but it really does need to be author driven no matter where you are, you know, no matter what your publishing journey is. Yeah, it's a lot of work. It, it and is. it doesn't it doesn't really stop. It doesn't. I mean, it shouldn't, you know, and that's the thing is that authors at some point are like, well, it has to stop because I'm tired or I'm done or I'm going to write another book. And and yet those authors who keep at it, keep at it, keep at it. I mean, we have some authors who are just tireless and they're still heavily promoting their book, you know, three, four five years later. So it is interesting to watch the people who have that capacity and, and what they're able to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think also... I think it's funny. It reminds me of my mom. So whenever this is a funny story, so bear with me. But my mom, anytime <laughs> anyone in the press, like for Hollywood stars, will say she's an overnight success. He's an overnight success. My mom, um, whom I'm close to, will will tell me, ah, overnight success. But meanwhile, they've probably been toiling for 20 years or 10 years or five <laughs> exactly. years. Exactly. It's the same thing with writers, right? Like, I mean, I do think there are some jewels, right? There are some people who just get championed and elevated and lifted right away because they've got something 
something very special. There's something that that just uh, whatever happened, right? They're they're in the zeitgeist, whatever. But for the most part, that's not going to happen. This like storied literary career in New York is not just there for the taking. Uh, yeah, and in my experience, even people who think that someone is an overnight success, it turns out they're not an overnight success. You know, like I remember because I worked with Christina Baker Klein at Seal Press and she had done a few books for us and then when Orphan Train hit, everyone's like, oh my God, she's like this overnight <laughs> success. And I was like, no, Break that's out. like her 11th book. <laughs> you know? know, so people just don't see the behind the scenes very much. And even people who are quote unquote overnight successes, oftentimes they have a career career in media. They're very well connected. Mm. They have gone to some prestigious writing school. You know, it's like people don't come out of the woodwork and just write bestsellers. It's There's oftentimes, you know, these very deeply entrenched places that people are connected or have been toiling away at short stories or personal pieces. So it, it's always a good idea, you know, if you're going to use those words overnight success to go look at those people's publishing credentials. Yeah, and I think it does help to demystify it and also normalize the idea that it is a lot of work. And unfortunately, look, I do think as a writer and, and watching other writers, it seems unfair. <laughs> I'm just going to say, like, it's unfair. Like, we spend all this time working, all this time trying to get our craft up there, and then we also have to promote it. And it just feels like, well, <laughs> can somebody else please make this part easier? So I just want to commiserate, you know, because I understand that it's hard. It's just, it's not like the easiest path, right? But it is a path we choose and it's an, it's an art and it's creativity. So I was going to ask you what keeps you coming back to memoir as a genre. It's <laughs> a good question. I, I love it. So I think it's a heart connection for me. I, I remember those early years at SEAL when I first started working on memoirs and how brave I thought those women were. And I got a real feminist education at SEAL Press. You know, I, like the books that we were doing opened my eyes to so many things. I mean, I was 27 years old, if I'm remembering correctly, when I started. And so it's not young, but it's certainly not old. And I, I didn't know a lot about sexual abuse or addiction or just, you know, these really dysfunctional childhood dynamics that people had. And I was fascinated, you know, not in a, uh, I don't want to say in like a gratuitous kind of way, but just that people would open up their entire lives and put it on the page really to help other people. You know, that's how I saw it. Like I'm putting this out there and it's normalizing other people's experiences. And then because I was working, you know, SEAL is a women only press. I, I saw firsthand, you know, how these women would both be amazingly celebrated for what they did, but also be taken to task, also be criticized. Mm. Um, and, and there's always that push pull of like the bravery is there and it's, it, it's being lauded and it's needed. And then the culture is also saying, oh my God, you're self, so self-indulgent. How could mm. you do that? Blah, blah, blah. You're a bad mother. I mean, name it. And so mm -hmm. in the middle of all of that, I realized that I wanted to be a champion of memoir, you know, that I was allied with these women authors and that I was part of the process of midwifing these books. And mm -hmm. I just felt very proud of that. And I still do. And I, I think it's not just a meaningful genre. You know, I think it's a genre that saves lives and I think it's a genre that changes the culture. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more. 
and the memoirs that you especially appreciate that that have really lodged themselves in your heart what do you find the memoirs have done well that you think other memoirists should think about striving for in their own work I think I can answer that pretty easily by some of the stuff that I teach in our memoir class, you know, I teach a six month memoir class with Linda Joy. So I think about this stuff a lot and there's many, many elements of craft <laughs> that make a good memoir. But the most important one in my mind in terms of it sticking with you is about what we call the takeaway, right? Which is mm. this kind of universal way of writing that is moving away at times from the I voice. It's not only about me, what happened to me, and then this next thing happened to me, and then this next thing happened to me. And I think a lot of new memoirists come to their story from that perspective. I'm telling my story, this is what happened, this is what happened, and it's a, it, it could be great writing, but if it doesn't attempt to literally in the writing, turn the writing outward and make declarative sentences or, uh, you know, what we call kind of speculation or interpretation or mm -hmm. this capacity to say, this is how we all feel about things. This is a universal human response to pain or suffering or grief or love. And the, the best memoirists do that. You know, they know how to actually in the writing, whether it's using the second person or, uh, making universal statements that are true to humans at large, there's this connection that happens. And, and so you can see that in the writing and it's not every sentence, you know, that can get very heavy handed, mm -hmm. obviously, but it's, it's baked into the memoirs so that when you're reading along, you feel like you're a part of it and you're not just, you know, like reading someone's journal. Yes, I I liken this a little bit, and I don't know if you would agree with me here. To me, we're getting really close to character I versus narrator I territory and meaning making, and I feel like I feel like when it's just the character I, if I may, it's just a string of events going on and and confronting this this person in the in the story, which is the memoirist in the time that it takes place this happened and then this happened and this happened and there's no one kind of threading the needle and 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 saying you know this is what this means mm -hmm. this is what i took away and of course i know what you're saying we don't want to say that moment i knew that i needed to like it, it doesn't have to be heavy-handed like that like the that the narrator all of a sudden is in some spotlight and distracting from the story <laughs> mm -hmm. but it it does there is a meaning making necessary to memoir, which makes it different from autobiography and different from just your everyday life. Well, and different from fiction too, because, you know, it, like a lot of people think, oh, well, it's just about a good story. And, and you don't see this kind of takeaway meaning making all the time happening in novels, like the protagonist is not required to do that. And in memoir, you actually are. You are required <laughs> to make meaning because otherwise it's just what happened. And what happened could be stunning. You know, I mean, people have really fascinating, horrible, riveting lives, uh, things that have happened to them. And sometimes I say, like, look, the story alone is carrying the drama, you know, or is 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 intriguing enough for me to keep my interest and, and to keep going. But I want to be moved. You know, and I also want to know, like, how does what you went through apl apply to my life? Where mm -hmm. is this point of connection? And, and in some ways, the more different we are from each other, the more important that is. You know, one of the things I love about memoir is that, you know, one of my favorite books, for instance, I use this example, is Kiese Lehman's book, Heavy. Mm -hmm. And we could not have more different upbringings. You know, he's a black man raised in the South. But I read that book and I 
get him, right? He allows mm-hmm. that. And that's such a gift because it allows you literally to step into someone else's shoes, their life, their experience. And that's why I think it's also such an act of generosity. And so mm-hmm. it's not about making yourself special or, oh, how different I am or how unique or rarefied my life was. It's the exact opposite. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, where are the points of intersection? How can I connect to my reader and make my reader see and understand but also like have such a level of empathy that the reader is like oh me too Mm, yes and it is satisfying I mean I know it's hard like when I was first drafting my memoir it was very hard for me to toggle or even find the narrative voice the narrator I I just wanted to kind of keep the young me sort of in a box sort of back in the past but I realize, and that's just one of the ways I think about it, and I could go on forever on this, but I think <laughs> that when when you do make that leap and find the voice of the memoirist I, the, the narrator I, the reflective narrator, it is so satisfying to the reader. And I just want to say that to anyone who's worried about being heavy-handed, a trusted reader and editor will help you. You can always pare that down and take it away if it's a little bit too heavy in areas, but it does need to be there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think you're right. You, you hit on something important, which is figuring out what that voice is. You know, it, it's there's a lot of different ways to approach it. And there are there there's a difference between stepping into the I character of then and that guiding narrator that you're talking about, that reflected voice that is the one who's offering the meaning. And people have different balances on that. You know, sometimes it's very spare, very subtle. Uh, Sometimes it's a little more heavy handed. And I, I don't think it's necessarily wrong. I mean, a good editor can help you figure out what that balance should be. But sometimes books that are very heavy on meaning, reflection, takeaway you know I like those kinds of books because it suits what the story is about and then other times you have stuff that is much more plot driven much more character mm-hmm. driven and so the, the the genre allows for all of it yes and actually that's a perfect lead up to this question I wanted to ask you so you have this fabulous podcast right-minded which is just beautiful I love the podcast that you co-host with Grant <laughs> Faulkner I really do and recently you talked about um, in in a pre-roll for your podcast a revolution in memoir and I was wondering if you could reflect on that that how memoir is changing as you see it yeah thanks for asking about it I mean we're, this so we're teaching this Linda Joy and I teach uh, memoir classes together and so like on the podcast we feature a lot of memoirists and then Linda Joy and I teach memoir classes and so the the class that we're teaching this spring is called the evolution of memoir and and the reason that we're teaching that class is because we have seen <laughs> firsthand through our <laughs> reading how much the genre is changing i mean i would say in the last couple of years we are seeing a, a massive sea change in the way that people are approaching memoir that it, it this meaning making that you and i are talking about today is much more baked in and expected. People are telling more non-linear stories and also just experimenting, you know, and I, I love to see it, but like third person, second person, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you might see a book that there's one line on the page, right? Or, <laughs> or a much more poetic kind of memoir like Maggie Nelson's Bluettes, you know, which is a very uh, popular book, but it's just this tiny, slim little thing. And, and so I think there's also like an intersection between poetry mm-hmm. and memoir as well that a lot of people are tapping into. And, and memoir, which has always been this kind of stepchild 
genre <laughs> it is really coming into its own in a way that I, I think is worth celebrating. Yes, I, I just love that you said that. And I feel so liberated. I'm a very linear person. And so it's always wonderful for me to see the different forms that you can use and how you can lean into nonlinear and lyric. And when I see things like that on the page, maybe a funny little squared off like section or just a sentence or just a word, I just breathe. I just I take a deep breath because I think it's wonderful and stunning. And, you know, sometimes it's just inexplicable when it works, it works. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the experimentation is wonderful. So pivoting in our last little while to publishing, I want to just kind of hit the publishing part of this hard for people who are very interested in that. I'm curious, you've, you've described yourself as a publishing agnostic. You said, <laughs> you know, you work with authors, to the, your words, right? You mm -hmm. work with authors to get published traditionally, independently, hybrid, self-publishing. So what has been happening in publishing lately that is good news? Well, I think there's a lot of good news in publishing. You know, it's it's a it's a mixed bag because sometimes the things that feel hard about publishing are also opportunities elsewhere. So, for instance, the consolidation of big publishing and the myopic focus of big publishing and by big publishing I mean the big 5, you know, corporate publishing, New York publishing creates opportunities for someone like me, we're getting bigger and better projects than we've ever gotten because the big five is insular in its thinking, first of all, and sort of only goes after what it considers to be quote unquote sure bets. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's a double-edged sword. Like it's, it's bad and it's good. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think the accessibility, you know, I mean, people, again, like a good and a bad is like the bifurcation or trifurcation, I mean, whatever you want to call it, of media, right? The splintering of media, I guess I should say. Some people could say that's bad, right? It's it's a problem because now everybody is their own voice and everybody has their own substack, and, you know, yeah. media is falling apart and you have to figure out like it's part of the echo chamber. On the other hand, we have never had more access. You know, we've never had more capacity to amplify our messages and to reach people. And it's very exciting to me. I mean, one of the things that I really love about Substack is that you know, the number of comments that I get to my Substack post as compared to my publisher's weekly columns hmm. are are vast, right? Like I, I'm doing better and more with my own media platform than I am on this very traditional magazine platform that I do like to write for. And maybe I reach more people, but I like mm -hmm. the interactivity of what's going on in the world. And so I don't know, there's a lot of exciting things right now to be an author and to be engaging and, you know, some of that stuff comes at the expense of the old ways of doing things and people can feel feelings about letting go of that. Yes, but that is really good news. It's sort of like, I think I'm hearing lots of content. Well, there's a shrinking and there's like an overwhelming monopoly happening, but there's also lots of content, lots of places to share your writing and a lot of ways to reach readers. Right. I, I think that's exactly right. And, and you know, people like, anyone. I mean, like the vast majority of people that I work with now 
wouldn't have been able to do anything with a rejection from the big five. You know, you just would have said, oh, well, I guess I'm just not getting published. You know, now we can build platforms. We can have our messages be heard. We can believe in the power of our own story and our own voice. And there's this whole other thriving world. And I honestly think it's more interesting and more creative uh, you know, and so even as we're seeing this sort of consolidation that people bemoan, you know, I mean, yes, people are being laid off from media. It's it's mm -hmm. a scary time. There's a lot going on, but there are so many platforms and so many exciting things that writers are doing. And I, I just think we have to hold on to that. I mean, we're just, we're living through something really big right now. It's a seismic shift, but there's a lot of opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I was going to ask you, I meet with some writer teachers. We all have different genres that we, we write, but we all teach as well. We meet on Tuesdays when we can. And we were talking about Substack recently and talking about how people have the time or the energy or even the content to regularly add to their Substacks and who's reading it. And I remarked that I hardly have time to get my own newsletter out just for the podcast, let alone a Substack. And, and I seriously, I, I, well, I, I'm shy about asking this, but I'm sort of wondering, A, where are people getting all this content? And B, like, is there a, a danger for writers who are deep in a project or trying to finish a book of diluting or distracting themselves with Substack? Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I think that's always been a danger for writers, <laughs> that there's mm -hmm. always that next thing to distract you. I, I talk to a lot of people who are deep in the throes of a project. You know, is this going to be something that is going to derail you from your writing project? I mean, that's true. That's been true of social media and all kinds of stuff for forever. You know, things that are it's there's more instant gratification, too, because you're engaging with people and you're getting likes. So the answer is yes. I absolutely think there's a danger of it being distracting. Um, I think absolutely there's a danger in our culture of just too much content, um, but I also think we're, we see that clearly people are consuming. You know, I, I, I always get into that like, oh God, not another thing. But then sometimes when I join something like Substack, I'm like, wow, this is a robust, really exciting <laughs> community that I want to be a part of. So, you know, I don't know. I, I, and, and for me, I mean, like I'm writing one post a week, but it's actually interesting. like. It's, it's more invigorating for me. It, it, it propels my other writing because I'm in a writing practice. Mm. And so it, it actually has had the effect of making me more excited about my memoir. And so I think that can happen as well. Um, yeah, I, I'm sure it's everything and everybody's different. You know, I mean, some people yeah. don't have enough content or, or just, you know, are, are busy with other things. Some of the people who are like the most prolific writers I know, I feel like could write a book a week. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're just like, I, where are you coming up with all this? I don't know. But yeah. Yeah. I told my mom, I'm a very slow writer. Um, she didn't believe me because she's like, I see your stuff. I was like, no, no, no. I'm a slow writer. Okay. So what is uh, something you'd like to share about the difference between a writer who gets their book published and a writer who doesn't? How can writers bridge that gap? Yeah, it's a great question. I think there's so many contributing factors. I, I think writers who get their books published feel the fear and do it anyway. Mm -hmm. I think they find accountability, you know, whether that's through a writing buddy, a group, a coach, you know, whatever it is that they, if they're not self-sustaining, you know, and doing it, that they find ways to, to get that kind of uh, secondary support. Uh, I also think that 
there's a confidence like you know all of us are going to have these negative interior voices right the inner critic there I don't think it's possible especially to write memoir without the inner critic hounding you and so I think what needs to happen is like your belief in your project has to be louder than those voices and and that is something that you can cultivate I mean it's not about I don't think it's about banishing those voices I think it's about learning to hear how ridiculous they are or if they legitimately are scary you know like someone is not going to be your friend anymore this is you know you're going to lose a relationship or you're going to get sued then then confronting that instead of just letting the fear get bigger 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 you know talk to that friend hire a lawyer to vet your project you know so i think a lot of times we sort of let our fears consume us into hypotheticals and then the book never happens whereas like there are actual steps that you can take to figure out how in danger am I or what might really happen here and then you're you're actually dealing with facts instead of what ifs Mm -hmm. thank you for that and in our final moments I was hoping you might want to share some advice for writers working on their memoirs gosh um I think (laughs) not that not that you haven't been giving advice this entire interview but if there's a (laughs) like a nice little juicy takeaway you'd like to share Well, one of the things that I appreciated when you asked me to share, you said, you know, without compromising your process, right, without delving into anything that you might not want to share. And that was very gentle and kind of you, because I think that that's it. Like we have to protect and tend to our stories in whatever ways we need to without feeling compelled to share or get the word out there. It's been a really interesting experience for me because I'm really deep in it right now and I felt very vulnerable. And the impact has been that I have been distancing myself from social media. And it, and it's not like I'm gonna post about my memoir on social media, it's just the vulnerability. You know, like that sort of openness that I feel that I, like then to put yourself out there opens more vulnerability and and I've been chastising myself a little bit like oh I need to get out there I need to do this I need to do that and I'm like you know what actually I don't I it's okay to be where I'm at I'm not sharing pages with anyone right now I'm really just in this super insular creative process and I think our culture our friends our family you know there's a lot of push to be like share tell do blah you know and writing sometimes just really asks us to go within and and it Mm -hmm. can be counter it's not counterintuitive it's actually trusting your intuition and the the counterintuitive part is like like the world is saying hey come out do this do this Mm -hmm. and and like it's okay to just kind of huddle in for a little bit yeah, you're in the cave, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, it feels good sometimes and to give yourself permission for that as well, you know, to call it what it is. Yep, and I'm deep in that right now, you know, because it's not natural and I have a very public-facing job and so it's riding those waves and and just letting them be what they are, kind of being in the moment. Uh, I think that is a gift to myself for memoir writing and so I guess that's the advice that I'm sharing because I've been struggling with it but moving through it each day yeah and I really appreciate I want to add that that you agreed to have this conversation in the midst of this incredibly tender time for your writing process so thank you for that oh thank you Ronit I appreciate that a lot Yeah. And are there some books or guidebooks or memoirs themselves that you would like to recommend to listeners that that have been very helpful to you or have left a mark? I mean, over the years, you know, 
Bird by Bird, of course, by Annie Lamott is a total classic. I love it. I've turned back to it a couple of times. I, I often refer to The Art of Memoir by Mary Carr mm-hmm. because it's fabulous and I love Mary. <laughs> uh, you know, I got to interview in her in person and she's been on my podcast and she's yes, hilarious. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's good to laugh, you know, while you're doing this thing. What she says is like, you know, writing a memoir is like punching yourself in the face. <laughs> Um, and so I think those are like probably my two go-to guides and, and Mary's is much newer and Annie's is much older. Uh, and then in terms of memoirs, I mean, I just, I'm like, I'm always kind of keyed into the ones that are the most recent because they've made the most recent impact on me, you know? So the two that are kind of informing my memoir writing at the moment are two that are going to be in our spring class, which is in the dream house by Carmen Maria Machado Mm -hmm. and Maggie Smith's relatively recent book you could make this place beautiful both are doing things that i'm trying to execute in my own writing and i think that's the thing about reading i also listen to a lot of audio you know it's like i'll find someone who i'm like ooh. you know it's not that i'm trying to like emulate them it's that i'm i'm inspired by something that they've done and then i'm trying to integrate that into my own work in a way uh, you know, so maybe that is emulating, but it's like, sometimes people will say to me like, oh, I'm worried I'm going to sound like this person, or I'm going to lift this idea. And I just don't believe in that. You know, I believe in like standing on the shoulders of the people who have, you know, impressed you and whose work you love and, and learning and, and taking their work and doing with it, whatever you can to make your own work better. Yeah, it's so important. And I just love, who was, I think it was Kelly McMasters recently said on the show that reading, that reading is an an important part, is like an essential part of our job as memoirists is just one of the most wonderful things. Because what a gift that we have to and should read, read, read to learn how to write. Oh my gosh, it's essential too. Like a lot of people will come and say, it, I mean, I can like come to a class or coaching or whatever. And they're like, well, I just don't really read memoir. And I'm like, that needs to change, you know, effective <laughs> immediately. Because what right. are you talking about? Like, how are you going to write this book if you don't, if you can't see this wide world of people doing amazing, exciting things? So yeah, I, I mean, I read a lot clearly and you have to, when you have a podcast, but yeah. uh, it's, it's, it is a gift. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And then where can people find you? Well, thank you. Yeah, uh, I have probably too many websites, but brookwarner.com <laughs> is the easiest and it kind of collates all the things. But for the memoir listeners out there, Magic of Memoir is the site where we post a lot of our classes, you know, it's where we do our short classes. And then uh, the six month class is at writeyourmemoirinsixmonths.com. So lots of memoir wonderful. teaching going on out there. Yeah. Oh, it's just wonderful. Thank you so much for being my guest. I just love talking with you. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. I so appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to Let's Talk Memoir. For more about this episode and my guest, please visit the link in the show notes or on Instagram at Ronit Plank. That's R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. If you liked this episode of Let's Talk Memoir, please go ahead and share it with your friends and subscribe. And if you have two more seconds, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which really does help other people find the show. Thank you so much for being here.